This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Your ears aren't deceiving you. This is Zach standing in for Alina, but starting off proceedings today because I haven't done any World War I for about a decade and today we are going to be doing some World War One. Uh, is that right, Alex? Well, Beth's sitting here, so you would hope so, because I don't I think you know much about anything else. Well, stuff, but not yeah. to talk about for nearly an hour. Uh, yeah, because Beth, this is part two, Zach. So I don't know if you've noticed that when Beth gets slightly drunk and feisty. She goes on one of her little crusady rants about the um, fact that nobody pays attention to the Midlands. They talk about the Pals in the north and they talk about the Scots and they talk about the Londoners and nobody pays attention to her boys. So we She's only mentioned one... this like one or two times or 15 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh she's on there there are certain phrases that are barred today when we get to the song, but anyway. Um we did part one where she talks about how these guys we talk about the forty sixth Midland division, uh which have been a little bit crapped on um in history books. They don't come off the best. And so she was telling us all about where the boys came from, when they enlisted, how they got to the front, and we left them sort of after the Battle of Luz and at the end of nineteen fifteen. And then she pulled the sad Beth Cat Shrek pouty face thing at me about coming back to do part two to take them through to the rest of the war. So that's why we're here. That's you up to speed. That's that's great. Um, I mean, like I say, I haven't done it since I was an undergrad. There are literally no a decade ago. Okay. So. No poetry. <laughs> <laughs> no Siegfried. I can't even say his bloody name. Siegfried Sassoon. Then no poet. No donkeys. Um, just. Lovely chaps from the Midlands who deserve to have a light shone on what they did. But she's not even holding a gun to my head. Right, okay. We left them at the end of 1915. This is more. Where are they? Beginning of 16, what are they up to? Uh, They they basically get a winter sunshine break, don't they? They do for a little bit. Um, They sent a message. They received an order in the early part of December 1915 saying that they're being moved to the Middle East. Um, so by Christmas Day, they're all packed up on trains on Christmas Day and Boxing Day. They have their Christmas um, dinner early. They have it on Christmas Eve. Packed up on trains down to Marseille, and they are shipped off to Egypt. Um, they have a little bit of fun before they even get on to onto the boat, onto the ships. Um, there's a bit of an accident on the way where the gangplank falls and a group of about 10 soldiers and all of their kit and all of their rifles fall off um, and they drop about 10 feet and we've got broken legs and head injuries. So it's all fun and games before they even, um, before they even get to Egypt. And they spend about four weeks in Egypt, not very long at all, doing a bit of training, getting used to being in a different environment than what they've been in. When they get another order to come back to France. Now it, a lot of them, the stories say they'd saved up a lot of their, their wages and they blew their money whilst they were in Egypt. 
Um, and a lot of them were rightly quite annoyed that they were then being sent back to the cold, wet northern France that they'd just come from um, and being taken away from this glorious Egyptian sunshine. Um, so they were brought back within six weeks. By the end of February, they were back in northern France. What's the um, behind that? What would they have been going out there for? So by then we pretty much know we're leaving Gallipoli, so they're not going there. Hmm. Yeah. So have all of those go to Egypt for training and stuff. Hmm. All I can see from what I've read is that it was just potentially training. I mean, maybe, who knows, eventually they'd have gone on to Mesopotamia, maybe, or Palestine. Who Who knows where they would have eventually ended up. But as it is, they end up right back where they started. <laughs> Basically, they are back where they started, within just a few miles, really. Um, in the February, there was a little interesting story that I came across whilst I've been obviously doing all of the reading of all the war diaries that we do. Um, and there was, a, there was an, in, an instance where uh, it was mentioned in the divisional war diary first, and then I'd go down to brigade and then go down to battalion. And essentially, there was a an accident um, at the end of February, um, a bombing accident, where during a training exercise, a soldier, Sergeant Pritchard, um, was doing a demonstration of Mills bombs to a group of 15 soldiers. And as he pulled the pin out of the grenade, so usually you pull the pin out, there's a couple of seconds delay before it explodes. As he pulled out the pin, the grenade exploded immediately in his hand killing two soldiers and wounding 13 others. Now, Sergeant Pritchard was not actually one of the ones that was killed um, in this incident. I imagine he probably did lose a hand. I'm still trying to find out a bit more information about him. Um, but there were two that were killed, so Private William Huff and Sergeant Sidney Rooker, um, who are both from the area where I live, and they're just tended to. They're buried in this little t- churchyard in a village called Prueville, just the two of them up in the top corner. But... The picture on the Commonwealth War Graves Commission shows their, their um, headstones are always covered in flowers. So I feel like the local village have probably um, adopted them along the way. Um, but I'd love to go and that's one of my jobs when I am allowed to travel again to go and uh, go and find them and see what uh, see what it, the lay about the lay is like. But yeah, so after that February, those first eight weeks traveling backwards forwards and accidents, quite a dramatic start to the year anyway um then moved around to the area near Vimy Ridge and Neville Samvar and Suchet as well um lots of time taking part in trench raids training what you would normally expect to be happening um at the end of May they are moved down to the Somme they are moved to the near the village of Gomcourt and Francfillers and let's they become. Cut, hang on, um, I'm going to cut back there um, and let Zach come on with a question. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. About is this where we see them making their move down to the Somme? Um, and should I be afraid of you right now because they don't do very well, do they? <laughs> is the next bit where they move down to the Somme? Have I got to be a bit kind of careful of you now? Because is this the point where things don't go particularly well and you get quite angry and yum yummy at me? <laughs> well in essence yes it is the part where they moved down to the sun but no you don't need to be afraid of me Zach I will do my best and I will educate you and I will be a calm and professional you're um, on cold sober so this helps <laughs> <laughs> it does help 
um, I get very passionate about these things. You do indeed. I'm a passionate. We had noticed, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> I am a passionate person. It cannot be helped. There is an unrecorded, thank God, rant of Beth's uh, where she she just went to town on this subject. But yeah, your division. Where are they going now? Yeah, so they, they do move down to, to the Somme. Um, they move to near the village of Prongvillers and Gomcourt, right up in the top end of the Somme Valley. Um, we all know the Battle of the Somme. Well, you know, we know what happened on the 1st of July. It's a pretty well-known story. The division are not included in that story, as it were. They are fighting near to Prongvillers and Gomcourt on the 1st of July. That particular area is about two miles north of the northernmost tip of what would be the Battle of the Somme. Their orders from GHQ for the 1st of July were as followed. The objective is to assist in the operations of the 4th Army by diverting against itself the fire of artillery and infantry, which might otherwise be directed against the left flank of the main attack near Seine. That is their premise of what they are carrying out on the 1st of July. Their attack is designed as a diversion. It is to draw away the artillery from the northern end near to Seine um, and beaumont Hamel as well. It is to stop the Germans from using their artillery and causing a lot of damage at Seine. I mean, which is a different story anyway, and it goes terribly wrong there on the third day anyway. But that is their job, that is their role, to cause a diversion. Not necessarily to take the village of Goncourt, although obviously that would be nice. Um, taking the village would shorten out that the German salient that was into the British line. It would shorten that, which is obviously very beneficial as well. It had been suggested before, and actually by the Corps Commander, Lieutenant General Snow, or Doily Snow, um, that an operation around Arras would be effective as well, um, and less costly, potentially. But well, it was eventually rejected because it would have no influence on the artillery around Goncourt, which could cause havoc at Say. At this point in time, the 46th North Midland Division, you know, they're already under strength. They are running at about a 65 to 70% capacity. Um, and this is for a number of reasons. This is because of their offensive at Luce in October. They're just not getting the level of replacements that they need, sickness and illness and, and injury. They are running low on men anyway. Is that unusual? No. It's not unusual, no. It's not unusual across the whole perspective. I, I, you know, I don't think it's that uncommon you know we're we're two years into the war almost by that point there will be you know units that are lacking I mean I'm sure there are probably some that had a bit of bet better numbers wise but it's not it's not unheard of um obviously we've started to see conscription at the beginning of 1916 because we need to supplement these numbers um so yeah it's not it's not uncommon for the purposes of Zach, these are largely, um, this is a territorial unit, but l broadly speaking, on the first day of the Somme, you're looking at swathes of those really early Kitchener volunteers going the into offensive battle for the first time, like on a huge, a huge offensive. Yeah. Is what it's been for. The division, you know, what had happened 
at Gomcor in the days and weeks beforehand was not dissimilar to what had happened elsewhere in the Somme. You've got the week-long artillery bombardment they had that as well at Gomcor. They had the training that they required in the weeks beforehand as well. You can see in the diary, particularly for June, units being taken out to do more training. So they are preparing for this with the full intention that they will take Goncourt. Um, it is it is the, the big objective that they would like to take it. It's a diversion. If they take it, wonderful. But they are planning to take it. But it does, like other places during the Battle of the Somme, it does start to go wrong almost as soon as the whistle is blown and they're out of the trenches. Um, the smoke screen for, for the 46th North Midland Division, they are not the only ones attacking Goncourt. So they are attacking from the northern side of the village. Attacking to the south is the 56th London Division, um, which is why I get very passionate about this, because I've been in a conversation with Alex and Lockie, and they were like, the Londoners, the Kensingtons, and I was like, no, the Midlanders. Um, Basically, the gist of this is that there's a wood, and the Londoners are going round the south side, and the Northerners, sorry, Midlanders. <laughs> it's north of Watford. The Midlanders are going round the north side, and it's a pincer movement. Yeah. And the, yeah. de- the drunken debate is, whose fault is it? that? It- yeah, this, this is what I'm remembering from but that. Yeah, my my <laughs> premise is that whilst I'm get very passionate about it, my premise is, is that it's no one's fault, in a way. It was the first day of the Battle of the Somme, it was June 1916. It was a combination of things that went wrong. So My issue is that the 46th Division get blamed for it. Yeah, so which I talk- think is unwarranted. Sure. So you were talking about how the plan that Goncourt isn't a, an objective per se because they are part of this diversionary effort to basically draw the artillery fire. It is a significant diversion, though. It is mm-hmm. like... Yeah, it's two divisions worth. You know, that's not a throw a battalion in here as a diversion, throw a brigade in here. It is two divisions. It is an, it's fair to say that it is an offshoot of the first day of the Battle of the Somme, of the actual Somme plan. It is fully part of the plan, even though it's just off to the north. So Beth was talking about how, for all that it's... It, it's, it's a diversion it's an offshoot the the focus for the midlanders was we're going to try and take goncourt anyway to yeah. the south londoners have that same mentality of we're going to push as hard as we can see if we can take it i.e both divisions are working on that same mindset or is it just the midlanders going you know what we're going to do this job and we're going to do it properly no the problem is that the londoners get much further round than the midlanders and when they turn round, the midlanders aren't there and then they suffer badly, which is why the Midlanders have been... This is why Beth passionately believes that the Midlanders have been scapegoated. But I think, like, for the purposes of this, I mean, to go into this now would take more time than we have, but I think Beth's biggest beef, let's concentrate on your biggest beef, is the treatment of the Divisional General after this. Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, just to say, like, on the day, you know... Everything, anything that you can think of for the 1st of July that goes wrong elsewhere happens at Goncourt. The barbed wire isn't cut. The dugouts, the German dugouts haven't been destroyed, so they all come out and get up back out onto the machine guns. You know, it's exactly the same. There are stories of 
the Midlanders who do get into Gomcore, like particularly the bombing parties with the with the grenades, never to be heard of again. Very, very similar story to what's happened elsewhere. But it's the treatment afterwards. You know, they have the very dubious honour of having the least amount of casualties on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. But they still have two and a half thousand casualties. But this is why people have tended towards the, well, where were you? Yeah, because they... They did do, I've, I've got in my notes, I mean, I could go on about it for ages, <laughs> but, you know, they do, elements do get in, elements do get into the German positions. There are first-hand accounts because there was then a court of inquiry. So there are first-hand accounts saying, I, this and this soldier got into this and this position with these and these other soldiers and my officer, you know, they're suffering just the same. You know, the 137th Staffordshire Brigade lose three of their four battalion commanders. They lose 16 officers all in all, let alone the other ranks that they lose as well. But they have two and a half thousand casualties. Conversely, the 56th Division lose 4,300 because the Midlanders can't get as far. It's not for want of trying. There is a second attack planned, you know, they try and bring as many troops back in as possible, re regroup, replan. They do try again in the afternoon. There is one thing that is a bit, I will say, dubious, where one battalion commander, and I can't remember his name for the life of me, um, yes, one of the battalion commanders does unilaterally cancel the attack he at about it's about three o'clock in the afternoon, I think it is. He says there is no point in us going. This is a he doesn't see that they've got enough troops to do the attack, so he does cancel it. That message doesn't filter across. Which the fifty sixth London division that obviously there was going to be communication errors. There's gonna be communication errors soldier to soldier, let alone division to division. And that message didn't get through. But it is the treatment of the division in the days afterwards that really gets my goat. Um, as we said, a court of inquiry is called on the 4th of July um, by the corps commander, Snow. Um, evidence is presented by troops from the division, accounts of what they've done. Um but reporting on the attack, uh, Snow does state in his own official co- correspondence that he seems to have firmly placed the blame with the divisional commander, um, who's the name of the Major General, the Honourable Edward James Montague Stuart Wortley. Triple barreled. Triple barreled. So we've got some big guns here, you know. As I said, That's impressed. In, yeah. <laughs> in the previous podcast, as I said, this is a man who has seen service almost everywhere in the British Army in the late Victorian period. He was in South Africa. He was at the Siege of Khartoum. Um, He was in Afghanistan. He was everywhere. He was absolutely everywhere and had a real reputation for training as well. This is someone who has a bucket load of experience, but is very much a Marmite character. He rubs people up the wrong way and he rubs the wrong people up the wrong way as well. He rubbed up Haking, who was his corps commander at Luce, the wrong way. And as a result, he rubbed Haig up the, the wrong way as well. I 
personally believe they were looking for an excuse to get rid of him. That's a personal assessment. I'm not saying that's the truth. That's just a personal assessment I have. Um, But even his core commander, Snow, at this time, he writes, and this is, oh, this line gets me so much. The 46th Division showed a lack of offensive spirit. I can only attribute this to the fact that its commander, Major General, the Honourable Edward Stuart, Edward James Montague Stuart Wortley, is not of an age, neither has he the constitution to allow him to be as much among his men in the front lines as is necessary to imbue all ranks with confidence and spirit. It's, it's fair to point out that Snow does not emerge from the war as one of the best judge generals. No, himself. He does not. But the, the, the blame for what happened at Garden Court is laid solely at the 46th Division's feet. There, there is nothing that anyone can really say to persuade anyone otherwise. And that is shown in the fact that very swiftly after this day, um, after the 1st of July, the Division are actually moved out of the area, away from the Somme. Okay, let Zach come in and ask you um, now a question, uh, lead you on um, mm-hmm. what was the what were the consequences? Um, were they put somewhere where you put duff troops, or are they moved? Is is it just a, a standard move somewhere after you've been battered? And and what what do they do with them in the months following? I think we should go to next. I think you've said enough on that now. Before you start, yeah. <laughs> shit, yeah. <laughs> Nicely stage managed, boss. So what happens to these these lads? I mean, you've got the Court of Inquiry, presumably that rumbles on. Do they stay in the front line? Are they moved somewhere else? Are they kind of given punishment duty for supposedly lacking in character? What's, what's the next chapter? Yeah. Well, they are moved out of the positions around uh, Funkvilla and Gomcor, but they're not actually moved that far away. They're moved about 10, 15 miles to the north. Um, I don't even think it's that far, actually. Um, and it is the, one of the quiet sectors. They are definitely put into a place where they are not going to cause trouble, shall we put it. Um, at this point, the Court of Inquiry has been very damning. They are now a formation considered to be of poor quality. Um, so they're not going to be given position. You know, they do not fight in the, the Battle of the Somme. They are, they're not used at all. Does that affect their morale? I think there may be an element of, of that. You know, there's they use the time to recuperate. I think it was. I think they've suffered at the Battle of the Hohenzollern Redoubt at the Battle of Lewes last in October fifteen. They suffer heavily in July sixteen. Then the blame is put on top of them. I would say morale is probably very low in July nineteen sixteen. You know, at the end of the day, you know, we're all historians and we talk in very we talk in broad terms but you can't get away from the fact that they are still human beings and they've probably just seen their best mates who maybe particularly because it was a territorial unit um a lot of the men from my town were in this division and they did live next door to each other they lived in the same street they went to work with these people it would have been a very big shock, I think. So to say that morale was high is probably wrong. To say there was no morale, I'm not sure, but it, I imagine it probably is one of their lowest points. Um, 
but they spend the winter of 1916 in this quiet sector. But they actually moved back to Goncourt, of all places, in end of February 1917. That's a really key date, isn't it? Um, Because that puts right back in the thick of things. It does. And they are actually involved around the 14th of March. They are involved again in fighting around Gomcourt to take the village. It's at this point, I do not proclaim to be an expert on this. We have one of those already. We've got a Lockie. Yeah, we've got Lockie for that. But, you know, it's the, the Germans are moving back towards the Hindenburg line and the British army are following after them. That's about the extent of my knowledge of that period. Um, so the division are involved in fighting around Goncourt. It's the same place they've been fighting over. They note in in the in the diary. Oh, actually, beg pardon. They moved back there at the end of December 1916, not the February. They they note that the position hasn't changed. They even note that the quality of the trenches, as if they've been left for the last six months with no improvement done to them. And I would say it's probably not out of the realms of possibility to imagine that there are probably going to be soldiers from the 46th Division, whether they were the Staffordshire Brigade or the Lincoln or Leicester's or, you know, it would be not out of the realms of possibility to imagine there are probably some who were killed in July 1916 who are still out unburied. I would say that's not unusual. That's not uncommon. But they are used to hold the position and then actually do make their way into Goncourt in March 1917. And they're then doing things like they're repairing roads and they're moving supplies for other troops as well. They're doing the donkey work in a lot of cases. Um, By the end of that month, they're actually moved again. They're moved to near the city of Lievan and Lons, which is where the Battle of Luz took place. So they've been there in 1915. As I think I mentioned in the first podcast, this is an area, it's, well, Lons and Lievan, the fighting happens in the city. Yeah. And I think I am writing saying, Alex, that it's the only kind of place where it's happening in a built up area rather than in a countryside. It's horrible. It's mining countries. At, yeah. So it's full of obstructions and pit heads and nonsense. Yeah. But you really, I mean, when we got asked to fight there in 15, Haig was not impressed. Um, no. Yeah. But it's an area, because it's built up, because it's an industrial area, because it's a mining area, socially, it's an area that's really, really common, like, really bad. It, it's, a, it's a good environment for the division. That's what they're used to back at home. So it's really familiar for them. Again, but it's generally where they are. Um, is again a quiet sector at this time <laughs> so they're fighting around Lons and Lievan in the summer months of 1917 small scale raids and attacks um, you know th- these kind of attacks as well at the time I think you could say not only used to strengthen B- British positions in that area um, but also if you think about it what's going on elsewhere in June and July 1917 mm. they are being used to pin down German troops in those areas so they don't get moved up to Messines and then what would become 30 as well. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One of the most significant of these events actually happens. It's quite like a sting, I think, this. There's an offensive planned for the 1st of July, 1917. So exactly a year after Goncourt, the division are being used to improve the position at Lievan and Lons. I personally, as a, I think, you know, it's exactly a year. They're probably remembering what's happened to them the year before, um, what's happened to their to their friends. It must have been quite surreal, I think, to then be asked to fight it all over again on the same day. And the position it is to get themselves in a good place around Lievan, you know, and it's it's brutal fighting. As you can see, you can see it in the war diaries. It's absolutely brutal. It is. It, it starts quite early in the morning. The attack launches under with artillery under under a creeping barrage. Actually, you know, one of these technologies that starts to develop in the First World War and becomes quite used on a wide scale um, at two forty seven in the morning. So it's really early because it's summer. Obviously, it has to be dark for them to do this, um, and almost immediately, like anywhere else. The attacking forces, so this one's for the Staffordshires, this is the North Staffords, um, are held up by machine gun fire, rifle fire from ruins, because obviously being in a city environment, it is ruined buildings. Very, very difficult to try and take in a in an offensive battle. Very easy to defend. Very easy to defend. And the is German- this a kind of World War One Stalingrad? Is it that level of kind of horror? Yeah, I think what I've read about it is there is so much hand-to-hand fighting, which is not something I know we talk about, you know, when they get into the trenches after an attack and they move forward and there's bayonets and whatnot. But hand-to-hand fighting, you don't hear of really. You know, first the First World War is an industrial war. It's machine guns, it's artillery, it's this, it's that. It's tanks, it's planes. But they're actually having to confront the enemy face-to-face. Hand, 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 punching, scrapping. I imagine probably there would be 
everything that they could think of, anything that could get their hands on, trench weapons, you know, with your trench your trench clubs, even just your own bare hands, strangling people. You can you can cause a lot of damage with just your bare hands as well. Beth sounds like an authority on this. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's a yam yam, don't mess with her. <laughs> um but they they do succeed actually in taking these these positions you know there's not just the ruins themselves they have to take there's going to be all the fortified cellars that have been turned into dugouts you know the germans had really elaborate systems of electricity you know into their dugouts they really fortified their positions very well we we know that um but they had managed to succeed in taking positions taking prisoners taking machine guns everything that you you know Sounds like it's moving forward fairly successfully. And this is all day. Um, it's noted in the the diary, the war diary for the 137th Brigade. It's actually noted in the that all ranks fought with great spirit and determination. And in spite of the fact that nearly all the officers and a large number of the NCOs became casualties early in the operations, junior NCOs reorganised their sections and platoons and constantly led them forward to the attack on their own initiative. That does not sound like a group of people who have a lack of offensive spirit. Is this an opportunity for redemption for them? Do they think of it in those kinds of terms? Look, it's the anniversary. We we got pasted last time. We got our reputation dragged through the mud. Here's a chance to earn back our reputation. Is that what the the records kind of suggest in terms of how they're thinking about this? Yeah, no, there's no real suggestion of, of that. There's no, there's nothing concrete written down anywhere because although they do manage to take, have some successes, it's not a blinding success across the board. Um, you know, they do have to regroup and counterattack and the Germans counterattack. They do struggle in parts to hold on to consolidated um, to, and consolidate the, what they have taken, the objectives they have taken. Um you know, attacks keep having to be postponed throughout the day, the next stage. It's still a long, hard slog. And eventually, particularly as you start to get further into day, you know, you start to get to two o'clock the next morning. We're talking about 24 hours after they've started. Um, officers, so like the brigade, the lieutenant colonel for 137th Brigade actually calls it off. He says, this is it. We have moved forward. We have taken positions. We've consolidated. That's it. We're drawing the line under that. So whilst there is success, they take the trenches, they take prisoners, they take machine guns. At a time, they have to stop because they they can't. They they need to. They want to be certain that they can hold on to what they've got. But again, because they don't take all of their objectives, um, because they don't get as far had as had been planned, even though they do manage to hold on to it, consolidate it, and they become the new British positions. Um, they're still like reprimanded because they didn't get as far as they should have. Um, it, again, accusations of repeat behaviour of what happened at Gomcor of junior officers stopping things when they shouldn't have. Um, it, it is understood again, they're still under strength at this point, you know, on that day, the 1st of July, 1917, the North Staffords had a battalion, the first sixth North Staffords had a battalion strength of 28 officers and 696 men, which is approximately 275 to 280 men under strength 
So a quarter, they're down 25% again. And regardless of this severe advantage, they, they still do what's asked of them and they still take some of the objectives, but still accused of, again, this lack of offensive spirit, not wanting to fight enough. This might be an idiot's question, but my perception of World War One is that there are lots of objectives that are set and quite often people don't reach their objectives for the first day. That's that's kind of, in my head, the story of what happens across the war. Is that fair? Is this unusual that they don't... a mix of that and they get them, but then they get punted out of them again when the German reserves show up. Yeah. Mixture of the two. But it, no, it's not a stupid assessment. Not a stupid question, no. Um, but they, it's again this accusation of, well, your junior officers have stopped, have told, you know, was you know they're not your junior officers as in your lieutenants second lieutenants it's your lieutenant colonel so the brigade commanders are assessing the situation on the ground which is you would think their job to do they're assessing the situation on the ground and they've said no it's not possible any further i would argue that that's a sensible approach you know you can see what you've got the numbers that you've got to do it and you've come to the assessment that it's not possible. I think that's a that's a sensible outcome. But they're again accused of this not being offensive enough. It it, it feels like they just can't win. Yes. Yeah. They do win in the they end. They do win in no, the they, end, though. Have you seen a they very do famous photo of a riverbank, a steep riverbank, covered in troops by a bridge at the end of World War One, celebrating their advance? That is the men of the 46th Division, and that is Rickerval Bridge. Go on, Beth. Have a moment of glory with your boys. Yeah, they get their redemption. So they do spend, after 1917, they stay in Lons and Liévan. They stay around that part of northern France, that really heavy industrial area. Um, And they're involved in what is the Battle of the the Saint-Quentin Canal, but very particularly around Rickval Bridge and the canal, the Belongilis Canal, the St. Quentin Canal. It has a few different names. It was part of what had started in August 1918, the 8th of August, as the 100 Days Offensive. So the 100 Days Offensive is from the 8th of August to essentially the end of the war, and it's the British and the Americans and the Australians and the French and everyone just pushing through and achieving quite a lot of big goals you know there's so many you've got the second battle of the Somme you've got the St Quentin Canal there's so many you've got Bellow Wood for the Americans it's a real time of progression moving forward for the Allies you know the Germans are on their knees at this point you know they've tried to break through with the spring offensive in the, in the spring of that year they're being the country is being blockaded by the British and and they are they're on their last legs they're on their last energies and they when so when the British try and break through in August or the British and the Allies they do you know they really manage to push through so for the North, the forty sixth North Midlanders they are brought in in the September September nineteen eighteen and they are used at the Battle of the St. Quentin Canal. And the idea of the attack was that 
the canal, the bridge, and the tunnel, the Belonglise tunnel, would all be taken in one go. Now, I've been to Rickaval Bridge. I, have, I don't know if Alex has. Um, ah, it was my pilgrimage, because that picture of them is taken, because George V was there on a battlefield tour. It was a few yeah. days after the armistice. So, yeah. yeah. And when you go there and you stand on the bridge, it is a really steep drop down. It's not a canal like you think of a canal in the UK. It is a drop. I would say 100 foot drop, roughly. Maybe, yeah. And it's steep as well. It's like less than a 45 degree angle as well. Oh, yeah. It is is ridiculous. And you just think, how on earth are you going to be able to attack this? Because the the whole... um, premises to get across it obviously the americans and the australians were going over the top of the tunnel the bellicor tunnel and the 46th north midland division i think it was a task that i don't think because they were the idea was that to go over the tunnel and then spread out from the tunnel and sort of then work back i don't think the 46th north midland division were ever expected to do what they did they're plan of attack was take the bridge take the canal all of that drop and then go back up the other side and take it i don't think they were expected to do it um it was felt at the time that it was very risky probably wouldn't succeed but it was required it was it was the next step of defense they had to do it but it was going to be risky um for the North Midland Division, the attack was spearheaded by the 137th Staffordshire Brigade, so Staffordshire men, which is my particular interest, um, and then with the Lincoln and Leicester Brigade and Sherwood Foresters Brigade in, in support. Um, capture and secure the canal, having taken the German positions that were on the west bank of the canal, so the Germans weren't just totally on the other side of the east of the canal, they had positions on the west side as well take those positions, get across the canal, take the bridge. Which, they do. you know, it says here, I think I've got... Hang on, sorry. You're going to need to cut this out. I've just had a mind blank. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so 137th Brigade taking those positions. If it was unsuccessful in capturing those objectives... The Lincoln and Leicesters and the Sherwood Foresters would then move northwards to attack those positions again, but they would then come at it from the American and Australian sectors because they'd come at it at a different angle because the Americans and the Australians were expected to take their objectives. The canal itself is quite peculiar, as we said, with this quite big dip, how wide it is as well. And this bridge was key. Every man was given a life belt to wear. However, they got across it. There are some elements of stories which suggest that they may have liberated them, shall we say. But they were standard issue as well in some some parts. You know, I'm sure there was some light-fingered behaviour going on. But they were given them. And it had been proved in a practice run that life belts could be worn by a soldier laden with equipment as long as the weight was distributed across the lower part of the body. So it was a plan in place. It was going to happen. Because um, I imagine as well, personally, 100 years ago, this area is not known for its water. I imagine there were probably a lot of non-swimmers among them. So I can imagine the life 
vests were a particular comfort as well, I'd say. Um, so they was preceded by an artillery bombardment, as would be expected, across the whole front of the battle. 1,044 field guns and howitzers, 593 medium and heavy guns, which started the night before at 10.30 on the 26th of September. Well, started on the 26th of September. So again, a couple of days build up with that artillery bombardment. It would hope that the intensity would break down the walls of the canal, making it, you know, maybe something to grab onto, shorten the distance that was needed. Um, but how successful this would be, obviously, no one would know until they actually got there. The offensive started on the 29th of September, the morning of the 29th, and it was an extremely misty morning. So vision was not good. Visibility was very, very poor. Um, obscured the attackers, of course, but then meant that they, they couldn't see where they were going either. Um, and at 10 to 6, Brigadier General John Campbell, VC, uh, better known as the Tally Ho VC, for his action in uh, 1916. Um, he led his unit from the flood front, blowing his hunting horn as he usually did in any attack. I see hunting horn or rattle. Mm. He's an old Etonian and he's a loon. He did this at first course of it. He yeah. literally, come on chaps, follow me. He's a nutter. Yeah. I feel like he is probably the personification of Hugh Laurie's character in, in Blackadder, but a competent one. Yeah. <laughs> you know come on chaps let's go you know all of that kind of vim and vigor that yeah. he's, he's older but yeah very very good lieutenant george yeah absolutely they move forward as as they needed to do advancing towards the canal um and it was almost immediately it was shown that the artillery bombardment had actually done its job and um, they had little difficulty in crossing the enemy wire and a mixture of the smoke from the bombardment and the fog provided them with enough cover that it really disorientated the Germans as well. They knew that obviously an attack was coming, but it provided the attackers the opportunity to get up close before the Germans could really do anything about it. And they managed to take the positions on the west side of the canal with very few casualties. Um, and they captured around 150 prisoners. And it was then confirmed afterwards that over a thousand Germans had been killed by the bombardment as well. So really good, some good statistics here, some good numbers for the British. Um, and then the Germans who had survived it rushed out, couldn't really see because of the smoke and the fog and then were taken prisoner on reaching the canal. They obviously needed to cross it. Start again. Cause that's something different. So to get across the canal where it's shallower in the south, they were used provided rafts and ropes. Um, and the Germans had very conveniently left a small wooden bridge behind, which they, of course, used to cross. Some, of course, would swim across as well. But this is very freezing cold water. So I don't think I would have chosen to do that. But some of them did. Um, but in the in the north of the canal, so north of where the bridge is, for the south Staffords and the north Staffords that were fighting in that area, they could use, again, ropes, pulled men onto rafts and the little lifeboats that they had as well. Um, but it was very, very obvious, you know, this bridge was important. This bridge is one of the few bridges in the area um, and it was going to be needed to get troops and supplies across the canal 
when the offensive was moving forward in the way that they had hoped. And what happened is quite possibly the most well-known incident of this battle, which was the taking of the bridge itself. So this was men from B Company of the 1st 6th Battalion North Staffords, led by Captain Charlton, who rushed the still intact bridge, the largest in that area, and overwhelmed a machine gun post on the east bank. They seized the bridge and Captain Charlton went down the side of the bridge to cut the wires to the explosives that a German demolition team were just about to detonate before he cut the wire. He then threw the charge into the canal. And it happened so quickly and under the cover of fog that the Germans simply didn't have time to react. They didn't have time to press that plunger to blow up the bridge because that group of men from B Company just, I can imagine, it's a bit like a kamikaze kind of situation. They just went, let's go, ran across the bridge, cut the wires, and that was that. And they managed to save the bridge and took as well 130 prisoners at the same time, which is incredible, including a really senior German officer and his staff. Um, Captain Charlton was awarded the DSO and the bridge was temporarily named after him as well for the, you know, it became known as the Charlton Bridge. And it's just so important because it's a significant route in then furthering the advance and being able to resupply soldiers as they went forward. Once the bridge had been captured and the surrounding area consolidated, um, the brigades and all the troops were brought back together restructured ready to move forward and advance which they then did again the next morning um much like what had happened at the bridge they could not withstand the assault and the germans retired from their position um the brigade then halted for half an hour before advancing again and this area was completely consolidated over the course of 48 hours a completely different picture to what's happened at Lons and the Avon at Gomcourt, at the Hohenzollern Redoubt. It is, it is their redemption. Absolutely. The, the wealth of communications that they had, you know, congratulating them, messages from home, messages from other commanding officers of divisions in the area, old commanders who'd, um, been in charge before there's one particular one that i like that's from uh, a man called thwaites so the guy who was in charge at the time uh, with general boyd um, had only taken charge a couple of weeks before uh, the 2nd of september in 1918 i think and the general who'd commanded in between montague stuart wardley being booted out and boyd taking place was to general thwaites and he sent a congratulatory message And Boyd responded, you know, thanking him for the message. But the last line of what he sends back is just so touching. And it says, it's essentially saying, I would never want to command any other group of men. How could I have done this without this group of men? Um, You should be so proud of these men. And it's a real heartfelt, wonderful message. And there's so, so many of them. You've got... um, You've even got, as well, congratulations from Haig. You've got Lord Dartmouth, who's the county's um, Lord Lieutenant of Staffordshire. And against all the odds of what should have seemed like quite a futile action, attacking a bridge and a canal, they they do it. They manage to achieve what had been potentially considered impossible. 
and this breaking of the Hindenburg line, because that's what it, the positions were, it was part of the Hindenburg line, was a necessary task needed to bring the war to its end. And it was an absolute success. So what you're they saying had, is the 46th Midland Division won the war? I'm saying the 46th North Midland Division. <laughs> if they hadn't crossed that bridge, it, it's a real key step in, you know, the, the end of the war is only six weeks away. Mm. Would it have been six weeks if they'd blown up the bridge and had to go around a different way? Would they, if they'd not crossed it? I genuinely do feel that it's a really key, significant turning point. They take, the division managed to take at that, on that day, the 29th of September, they take 4,200 German prisoners out of the total four, including the Americans and the Australians, they take 5,100. And the Midlanders take over 4,000 of them. And they have less than 800 casualties themselves on that day, which is quite baffling, really. They're, when we see, you know, the two two and a half thousand casualties, 4,000 casualties, they have less than 800. And they take 70 German guns as well. I think this is just an absolute... It, it's just one of the actions that you look at as a historian generally, and say, that is, that is really key. And it is a significant moment, not just for the division, but for how the last six weeks of the First World War play out. So tell us what becomes of the division then. The division, much like any of the others, stay in France after, you know, the end of the war, but things are starting to, to wrap up. They're, the division is all done and dusted by about the May. They've either been transferred into other units um, or they're sent back home. Pretty standard for any of the other um, of, of the divisions. Then they get their praise from these people, but there's no, I don't think there's no redemption for what happened at Goncourt. You know, Montague Stuart Wortley, when he was fired in 1916 was never given a field command again and this was a man who'd spent his entire life in the army he was given command of the 65th I think it is 65th lowland division which spent the rest of the war in Ireland um not getting up to much and after the war he wrote anyone and everyone he could he wrote to parliament he wrote to the house of lords protesting his innocence and he was never he was never vindicated of that Zach do you feel like you've been educated it has been a complete education um certainly I've picked up more than I did during the um post pub discussion (laughs) um perhaps the lack of alcohol helps there but yeah, thanks very much for this, Beth. It's been great. You'll be really pleased to know that Zach texted me as soon as you quoted Snow and said, but he wouldn't have been in the front lines watching the attack on the 1st of July. How he, how does he know if they lacked offensive spirit? That's it's, it's basic command and control. You don't put a major general in the front line where he can get eliminated very quickly and leave the the command structure leaderless. Yeah. It's just dumb. Zach is smelling a rat, aren't you? It's, yeah, but I'm not even a World War One person. I know that you don't do that. That's that's just common sense. Yeah, I feel vindicated now. <laughs> You're Finally, got my point across in the way I wanted to, <laughs> <laughs> without drunken rambling, without shouting, Raven Lockie. Yeah.
<laughs> Brilliant. Beth, thank you so much for joining us to round off the story of thank your you, Midlanders. Uh, you should research a few of them in detail and come back and tell us the stories of some uh, Indian yeah. men. That has already like, started. That's a yeah, project. You've got loads, work in progress. <laughs> loads of little babies that you've been researching from your local area as well. I know because yeah. I chase some of them all around Gallipoli. Uh, yes. So thank you very much. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.